Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Almost as wide as the wealth gap in America is the gap in the way we view wealth. We look at it as a monolithic thing, yet part of the country demonizes it, part covets it, and part manages it. The same is true of kinds of wealth. There are those that inherit it, and they're different from those that win it or those that start from nothing and create it for themselves and for others. All are not the same. The bitch goddess success, William James said, demands strange sacrifices from those that worship her. Some people are willing to make those sacrifices, and others are not. All of this speaks to the varieties of wealth in America and the world today. But are there similarities? Are there patterns and behaviors for the wealthy, good or bad, that we can understand from? And if we can, what does it do for us? What does it teach us? We're going to talk about all of this today with my guest, Michael Mechanic. Michael is a senior editor at Mother Jones, and he's just written a new book entitled Jackpot, How the Super Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Is it safe to say that Fitzgerald got it right, the rich are different? Well, I think they probably are. <laughs> Maybe it depends on how long you've had the money. Uh, you, I think you become different over time. Talk about that, because one of the things that, that, that really seems so important about this discussion is how people gain their wealth is such an important factor in determining what they do with it and how they, how they handle it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, some uh, I, there's one guy I, I interviewed for the book who, for instance, had a, a company that did sort of online corporate training. He built it up for a dozen years or something and sold it. And when he sold it, he walked away with $40 million, um, which, you know, was enough to be disconcerting for him because he said that once you sort of stop with the wealth creation phase and then you kind of go into the wealth protection phase and he became very fearful of losing his money and, you know, he, he didn't have the same kind of direction and meeting as before. Uh, and he actually said, he used this language. He said, you're fear-based now. And that really struck me. Like one of the, that struck me one of the most of the things that I heard. You're fear-based now. Uh, so he said, yeah, this is a psychological shift, at least for him there was, uh, where money becomes a worry as opposed to just something that comes when you're trying to follow some kind of goal or dream. Now, some people go into it, you know, go into what they're doing with the idea of the exit, you know, um, a startup and the idea is that oh, we're going to capitalize a startup and sell the company and make a ton of money. And that's the goal. But if that's your goal, I think you're going to run into problems because, you know, there's a lot of research on materialism and striving for financial rewards. And the people who are focused that way tend to have they have a lot of problems in life you know they have they have weak relationships with others they are just generally not the most happy people um you know happiness comes from forging like great connections and true friendships and being part of your community and things like that it's just sort of like your mom told you but you know things we don't believe that a lot of times we know we say oh you know money won't buy you happiness and people say well yeah but my life would be better if i had this and that um, I mean, certainly it's better if you're not in debt, but uh, up to up to a certain point, and then it, it, it kind of goes from salve to problem. 
I guess it, it also depends on how you view the work that you're doing. For example, there's so many people here in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley that, that do see the money as an end. They're going to start a company, they're going to sell it, and they're going to make a lot of money, and then they're going to do their next startup and their next startup and their next. And that's true whether it's, whether it's founders, whether it's VCs, because it's, it's the work that matters. It's what they're building that matters. Yeah, well, you know, it, it is, but also there's sort of, I got a sense from some of the tech, talking to some tech people and talking about Silicon Valley with people, that these guys who have a big windfall, they don't know what else to do but start companies. I mean, it's just kind of like, okay, the next thing, is, you know, they, they, they don't stop to think about the fact that they're now, you know, have $500 million in the bank. They could do anything they wanted, but they just go on to the next company and maybe that maybe that tech is actually useful but maybe it's not i mean there's a million companies doing stupid things that maybe make money but they don't really do anything for the world silicon valley has sort of brainwashed itself into thinking you know make the world a better place you hear it all the time make the world a better place and you know you look at some of these companies you go is this really making the world a better place no it's making the founders unbelievable amounts of money um and you know I mean, is Facebook making the world a better place? Hmm. I don't know if you've seen the documentary about WeWork and Adam Newman, but if you haven't, you should, because it really goes to the heart of this and this idea that he sold Wall Street, he sold investors on the idea of making the world a better place, when in fact, all that he was freaking doing was renting desks. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, and then there's the people like uh, uh, Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos, uh, who of course, was purporting to make the world a better place, but in fact, she was defrauding everybody. Um, so yeah, you get a, you get these types of stories, for sure. Um, people who are, it, sometimes people, the, the people seem to believe they're, they, they convince themselves that they are doing something great. In fact, you even get that from, you know, hedge funders and so forth. They, they rationalize their existence by saying, oh, you know, really, they're just gambling. It's a big casino. They're rigging a casino. But um, they say, oh, we're providing opportunities for pension funds to invest in this and that. And if it wasn't for us, I mean, it's all, it's nonsense. You know, they're, they're sort of milking, they're milking the game and milking, you know, the tax rules we have in place to gain un unbelievable sums. And I guess there's a difference. I mean, as there are differences and, sh and gradations in all of this between those that are in the money business and, and, and moving money around, as you're talking about, and those that are really building companies, and no matter how rich they are. I mean, you look at even people like, you know, you take the penultimate examples, people like Musk or Bezos or whatever, that still are, are working every day building their companies. No, yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, it's not like people are, when I say jackpot in this um, book, I am talking about anything from, you know, a lottery jackpot to creating something meaningful. Um, and, and of course, that is going to be a different kind of experience. I mean, the, the person who just gets money with, with uh, no real, you know, I mean, work is not enough. Uh, but a lot of times it's luck and timing and knowing the right people. Um, and that's another way people delude themselves and say, oh, I'm, I did this all myself. No, you didn't, you know. Um, but a, a guy like Bezos, right, he, you know, he's, he's super smart and super competent and obviously a, a good businessman. Um, and he built 
this incredible company, whether you like it or hate it, it's a pretty incredible company. Uh, and the question is, you know, I asked myself, the question is, are his rewards, are, are they in line with what he has given the world, right? I think, I think about that a lot with a lot of these companies. Are, are these guys being rewarded in a way that is reasonable and makes sense? Now, of course, companies can sort of reward their founders as much as possible, but as much as they want. But, you know, Bezos' money is all, it's all from the stock valuation. It's not from the profits of Amazon. I, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. He said if, if Jeff Bezos was compensated based on Amazon's profits, you know, he might, he might have $10 billion right now or 5 to $10 billion. He would not have 160 or whatever it is today. The other point along those lines is that companies, you know, Uber and such, they will, they actually, the founders make decisions according to kind of manipulating stock prices on the behalf of the investors and the executives. So these are companies that have never made a dime. And, you know, the guy who founded Uber is has billions of dollars, right? He's, he's, they, they're able to make choices that benefit the people who capitalize the company as opposed to, you know, the workers, et cetera. Right. But, but, but there's also, I mean, it gets complicated because when, when these guys founded these companies, in many ways, they were the only ones that might have had the tenacity, the vision, the ability to tell a story to create these companies. And yet then it gets taken over by the, the people that are running the financial aspects of it, whether it's people on Wall Street or Sand Hill Road. Yeah, that's true. In fact, there was one guy that I didn't ultimately end up connecting with for the book, but he was a young CEO, founder of a company that right now, I, I won't name it, but a company that's it's considered a unicorn. It's about to, it's going to go public soon. And he and his partners are going to be probably billionaires. And um, at the time, the reason I was interested in getting to him is he was right on the crux. And he felt he had, in private conversations with someone I know, he had kind of admitted to be feeling like kind of a puppet, like he was being, his story was being created and his narrative was being created by the venture capitalists who wanted him to present himself in a certain way and be a certain way. And he kind of was feeling very, quite lonely, actually. <laughs> and, and that's, that, that's interesting, the, the loneliness thing. I mean, there's actually research that shows that uh, there's a lot of CEOs are lonely, not just because they're the boss, you know, and managing people, but because they have kind of been building a brand their whole lives and, and striving for this, this peak. And they get there and they realize there's, there's a lot of things they haven't experienced because all they've been doing is, you know, looking for that success. And so they're at the top of the world, and yet they're not fulfilled. The, the other interesting thing that happens with that is that, and, and, and I think that this loneliness and ha having talked to just over the years known CEOs and, and people with a lot of money, is that what happens then is that they're lonely and, and disconnected from the people that work within their company and even family and friends sometimes so that they hang out with other CEOs and other people and other founders that are in a similar position. 
And then what happens next is competitiveness between all of these people with money that are CEOs. And then that I got to have a bigger yacht or I've got to have a faster plane, et cetera. Yeah, there, there was a guy in the, um, in the book named Richard Watts, who is an attorney who acts as a conciliary for some of America's richest families. And he told me he had just come back from Mitt Romney's annual shindig. It's called the E2 Summit in Deer Valley or, you know, some very, very fancy place. And he said it's, you know, basically 250 of the world's wealthiest people are there. There's senators, you know, Paul Ryan was there and, and you know, governors, senators, uh, billionaires. And he said, you know, I'm presenting to this room of people where the average net worth is at least half a billion dollars. And he, he said, and, and you quickly, you're in a room like that, and very quickly they figure out who has the biggest yacht. And he meant that as a metaphor, um, <laughs> a meta- metaphor for essentially masculinity, like who, you know, um, th- there is a lot of uh, measuring up in that kind of scene. And he said, I don't, you know, I, don't, I can't say they're like this all the time, but when they gather together, absolutely. They're, they're everybody's, and he said, if, he, he said to me, Mike, if you went there and said, uh, people say, you know, what do you do? You better have a superlative answer. If you say, oh, I'm a, I'm a journalist, I'm writing, writing a book, well, the conversation over. <laughs> they, they, only care about that. They, they only care about how much, you know, what companies I've created and how much money I have. You know? I mean, money becomes a yardstick to measure people's worth. I mean, that's one of our, it's very kind of, and I, you know, it happens everywhere, but it's also very American in a way to really measure people by their wealth in a way. And we, we measure ourselves, you know, how, how are you doing? Well, um, sometimes it's about what you've done, not who you are and how you feel. It's interesting that it's, on the one hand, it's very American. There's no question about that. And yet the Americanness of it is what makes it better, I suppose, than, you know, an aristocracy, for example, or a, or a real class-based society where there isn't the kind of opportunity to to create a startup and to create wealth from nothing. I mean, many of these these billionaire founders here in, in the Bay Area, for example, many of them did start with nothing. Those are opportunities that don't exist everywhere. So that's that's the plus side of this, I suppose. Well, you know, you could you could also say, I think Warren Buffett famously said, you know, if I was if I was born in Somalia, I would be a nobody right now. America has provided those opportunities because because it's a stable society and because the government has invested a great deal in in infrastructure and research. You know, when people say I'm self-made, I kind of raise an eyebrow and I say, <laughs> okay, did you build do you did you build the roads that your goods are shipped on? You know, did you um, do you fund the uh, you know the the police that kind of keep civil unrest under, you know, uh, there's, there's so many, did, did you uh, do the research on which the internet was based? No, that was the government. Um, so, you know, people lose sight. There's a, there's a libertarian streak in Silicon Valley in particular where, oh, you should regulate this, us, you know, we did this, we, we did this all ourselves with no help. Well, you know, Mark Andreessen, when he invented the first browser, he was working for a government agency. Uh, the Google, guys, uh, they were on a 
government-funded grant when they came up with the idea of Google. I mean, it goes on and on. You know, people people see the uh, obstacles, but they don't see what's been given to them. That becomes the the taxation argument. In fact, uh, just this morning, you know, we're recording this on on Tuesday morning, and just this morning. Elizabeth Warren ventured into enemy territory and was on CNBC's Squawk Box this morning. And, uh, I mean, it was brave of her to do that and made exactly the same point about the roads, the police, the stability of government, et cetera. And she was making the argument for a wealth tax and, and, and greater taxation. But, but one of the things about this, particularly as it relates to jackpot, is that the kind of people we're talking about are one class of the super rich, but there are so many others. There's those that inherited, there's those that that won the literally the lottery, etc., and and that all of them have to be looked at kind of through a different lens. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I think it's you know those the people who just sort of had money fall on them. First of all, they're not really prepared for it, but second of all, they're also not the ones that are are lobbying the government, gaming the system, and trying to twist things more to their advantage than they already are. Um, you know, we, we talk just on the on the thing, of the, you know, there's been a lot of activity around the wealth tax and the, President Biden is talking about raising the capital gains tax. And just today, he I, I read that he um, wants $80 billion to beef up IRS enforcement of, you know, aud- audits of high earners, which, by the way, the, the IRS has been completely gutted. So that's a good move as far as the Treasury is concerned. Yeah, those people tend to be more unmoored, I guess you might say. Uh, when when you are given, you know, there's there's a lot more guilt involved and a lot more feeling. I mean, I you know, I didn't I didn't talk to some of the super entitled scions who think they're God's gift, but. Um, one inheritor, the, the main inheritor character in my book is a woman who, uh, she came, her grandfather had had a financial services company and she didn't know much about it. Her, She had been raised kind of upper middle class. She and her brother, they weren't ostentatious. Her, her mom, her parents were both kind of academically oriented, even though, you know, her mom didn't have a job, which was pretty normal then. Um, but, you know, she had a PhD and they hung out with, with scholars and so forth. And so, you know, she had a pretty, she had a pretty normal childhood. And then she goes off to college. She's given a, a fund to pay for college. And after college, the money keeps pouring into this fund. It was like dividends from, from, from holdings from her grandfather's company. And she was never really told much about the extent of the family wealth or what it might mean to her. And then all of a sudden, she's like, you know, the, the, the wealth is accumulating in this fund and it gets up to like $200,000 a year, just profit, like pouring into this fund, which is pretty crazy. But she's like, well, you know, it was less than a million dollars. You know, I could buy a, a nice house someday. I wasn't, I was, you know, she would kind of, she was kind of in denial, kind of avoiding the whole issue. She would shove the quarterly statements in a drawer. And then she's on the verge of getting married she's in her late 30s and the dividends in this fund start multiplying and all of a sudden she's getting millions of dollars a year millions and she didn't really know what to do so you know it it keeps going on from there and now she feels like this thing is a giant burden on her because she is 
you know, she went to graduate school, she became a writer, she writes books, and she feels like that's what she wants to do. She doesn't want to spend her life trying to figure out how to give away money or, or you know, manage money and deal with this. And, and it's creating issues in her friendships, um, where and it, and also in her love life, her, her marriage kind of split up largely because of tensions around wealth. And then, um, and then, you know, she's tried to find intimacy with others and it's been difficult because the wealth is just this, you know, it's this constant companion and it gives her a lot of anxiety. And, you know, we, you know, we all say, well, I could handle it. Right. I mean, that, that is always the answer when we, when wealthy people have problems, we, we play the world's smallest violin and we say, Ah, uh, you know, why don't you just give it away or what? Give it to me. I'll give it to me, I right? It. We, we all think, you know, we all think, oh yeah, I could deal with this. But you know, it's it's really, it, you know, if you're a thinking, feeling, empathetic person, dealing with that kind of wealth is not always pleasant. You know, it can and it can wreak havoc in your life in your relationships. I mean, the other side of that is that there's a whole industry that is devoted to managing money for, for wealthy people. And there there are charlatans in that business, but there are also great and really smart people that take that burden off your shoulders and that, that take care of you. Yeah, well, to some degree. I mean, in fact, the, the wealth industry has really expanded because people have started to realize that that wealth creates all these problems they used to be just ignored but now you have education specialists and child development people and psychologists and you know people of every possible uh ilk are within the wealth these wealth management firms um but then again you know you you <laughs> they are actually they're really your therapists i i talked to uh i talked to lawyers i talked to luxury realtors i talked to high-end salespeople, uh, I talked to estate lawyers, and they all say I'm essentially a therapist for very wealthy people <laughs> because, because that's who people can talk to. They can talk to their, their professional entourage about their problems. And you know, when you have to make decisions about money, that opens up a venue to talk about your anxieties about your money and what to do with it. Uh, and, and it's sort of unfortunate that Money is such a taboo subject that we it's hard to even bring it up with friends. Uh, it just feels so private. It's almost more taboo than, you know, sex in our society. We love to talk about money, but not our own money. And so people and that's, and that's another sort of way people feel they say it's privacy, but they, they also there's a sort of loneliness to it. You can't really commiserate with people unless, of course, you live in a wealth bubble where you know everybody has 100 million dollars. And that's another issue because we segregate ourselves by wealth, and that creates a sort of a divide in the fabric of society. Talk a little bit about that, and what you, as, as you did research for uh, jackpot, talk a little bit about what you found in terms of these wealth bubbles, because that's really an area that has grown so dramatically, along with you know the wealth gap in this country, but but just the the sorting out by geography has had such a profound impact. Yeah, well, some some researchers looked at metropolitan areas all over the United States, and they found that the areas with the most income inequality 
were also those that had the most what they call income segregation, which means like the percentage of poor people living in just poor neighborhoods and the percentage of affluent people living in just affluent neighborhoods. So you have a shrinking of the mixed wealth areas, or you, I guess you could have a gentrifying of parts of them. Uh, so the you know the rich live on one side, the poor live on the other. The mixed wealth people is a smaller community in the, in the middle, and and then there there are communities you know that that are hyper exclusive. You know Fisher Island, Florida. You know it's like 41 families, and you have to pay dues of $250,000 a year just to live on the island. Uh, you know create, you can't get there. You can't even go there unless you're a guest of somebody. So you have these sort of isolated enclaves of the gated communities and everybody that you, first of all, you don't interact with people that much because in these wealthy areas, you know, half the time the people who live there have four other houses and they're only there part of the year. And when you do come, and also the houses are bigger and farther apart, you just don't have as much community interaction. And, and when you, um, and when you do, you know, you go to the parties, and Bob is talking about his private jet, and uh, Shirley is talking about her private equity play. And you know, these are not these are not normal conversations, but they become normal to someone in that echelon. And and also, you know, it becomes normal to oh, we, we're we're hosting a congressperson for a political fundraiser here, and we um, we have this general Stanley McChrystal is going to do a, a private book reading at this person's house, and. You know, th that's a real example, actually, <laughs> one of my services told me that. Um, so you get, A, you get sort of this hyper, hyper exclusive bubble where you kind of lose touch with what real Americans are dealing with and struggling with. And um, there's a sense that of a loss of empathy with others because you don't see the problems and you don't see how others are living and struggling you only see people like you. To what extent, and we're just about out of time, but to what extent has this been a problem always, this, this kind of divide in terms of understanding between those that have money and that live in their own private world and those that don't and this empathy gap that you're talking about? I mean, these are problems and, and issues that have been with us for a very long time. They're not things that are indigenous necessarily to the modern accumulation of wealth. No, I think that's correct. In fact, Andrew Carnegie uh, wrote about this. He wrote about being estranged from the workers in his factories and how he actually said, you know, caste, rigid castes are form and each distrust the other. Uh, I, but I think what we're seeing is an expansion of that because in Carnegie's time, I mean, we're actually back to the, you know, back to the Gilded Age. It's the second Gilded Age. In, and, you know, in the 40s and 50s or 60s, the difference between a CEO pay and a worker pay was something like, you know, 25, 30 to one. And now it's hundreds of times. It's, you know, 350 to one or something like that now. And when you have that kind of wealth divide, you are you're, you are certainly not going to live in the same neighborhood. You are not going to socialize with, uh, you know, your boss. And the boss is not going to socialize with the workers outside of, you know, a work party. Um, you're going to get more of that estrangement. And then, of course, if you look at the how the wealth gap has expanded since the uh, 80s, since the Reagan tax cuts first came in, 
the graph is just it, it's wild. Um, it's it's just wild the extent to passive capital has accumulated, and the richest people who make all their money from from investments have gotten extraordinarily richer, while average working people haven't gotten richer at all. Where do you think all this leads finally? I think it um, it leads to some of the problems we've been seeing, frankly. You know, the political divide in this country. You know, in a lot of cases, you know, we talk about the the racial equity and so forth. That's really an economic issue, and it always has been. Um, a lot of at the base of a lot of the uh, the problems we have now, the social problems we have, is money and and an economic divide. You know, and even you have <clears throat> some poor people who seem to be arguing against their interests or middle class people arguing against their own interests, but that's also a reflection, I think, of ultimately this wealth divide and the way the super wealthy people have a chance to manipulate the thinking of of the rest of us uh, and also to control the political process. So, um, I mean, I, 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 there's a number of wealthy people who are sort of talking about pitchforks. They're worried about people coming with pitchforks. And, but it's really a metaphor. I asked Nick Hanauer, who is one of my sources, um, he's probably worth between half a million and a billion dollars. Uh, he talks about pitchforks a lot. I said, okay, so what, 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 in what form would these pitchforks come? And he said, pitchforks are here. This dissolution of civil society, Trumpism, it's all, it's pitchforks. Uh, this is, you're seeing it right now. And so I thought that was a pretty good answer. Michael Mechanic, his book is Jackpot, How the Super Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. Michael, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you.